Well, hello, friends. Paul Yeager with you. This is the MTOM Show podcast, a production of Iowa PBS and the Market to Market to Market to Market to Market program, which you see all over in our studios here in Iowa. We're going to talk about cattle across the country today. Our friend Daryl Peel at Oklahoma State University, he's an extension specialist in livestock. We had a great chat with him last year. Many of you uh, caught that. We're going to test his knowledge about the most recent cattle inventory report. There was one headline that was easy to see, and that's some low numbers since the 1950s. Here's the thing. Mr. Peel has some, I won't say breaking news, but more news in that same vein for the coming year. One, year two, and maybe even year three. We're going to get into what's going on on the farm, in the feedlot, at the packer door, and at the grocery store. We'll also talk about the restaurant and how that consumer factors into all of this discussion about the livestock market. If you have any feedback about the program or an idea, I'd love to hear from you. It's paul.yeager at iowapbs.org. Now, let's talk livestock. What's the travel season like this year? You've been busy? Uh, I just got back about an hour and a half ago from Atlanta. <laughs> I've been on the road for the last week. What are people asking you? And so, well, you know, I haven't done, uh, I've done a lot of media stuff, but I haven't actually done any producer meetings since this report came out. Um, I've written a couple of things and done a bunch of media stuff, but, um, you know, producers are generally very, very happy with the market we're in. They're, they're kind of excited, but they're still proceeding with caution. Um, is my, is, is my way of, of interpreting it. Um, you know, we certainly didn't see any heifer retention last year and, uh, you know, we have to wait and see what happens this year. Um, I think they're ready. I think they're thinking about it. I think they're getting closer to doing it, but, um, it's been a slow process to get their, uh, to get their expectations to a point where they really wanted to jump off and do that in a big way. Well, let's look at it this way. What was your headline of that cattle inventory report? Well, you know, um, no big surprises. I mean, the report actually came in pretty close to expectations. So, um, you know, we've gotten smaller over the last year coming into this year, um, small enough that in many cases we're setting, you know, uh, decades long uh, comparisons now on some of these inventory categories. Um, you know, the only surprise, if there will, if you will, in the report was really some of the revisions that USDA made to last year's numbers. Uh, specifically the replacement heifer category. Uh, those were big revisions, uh, but, you know, that happens uh, as more information comes in. So, again, not a surprise that we would get revisions, but the, the the size of the revisions was a little bit bigger than you would normally expect. A year ago at this time when we talked, the story was, I still categorize it as a weather story. Now, again, when you talk about revisions... Has that revised how we talk about the 22 story and looking at it in 23 and now here in early 24? I don't think it really does. I mean, we go back and it basically says that we were, we were, you know, getting tighter faster than we realized and then, then the data said, but in some ways, you know, I suppose a, a, a little bit bigger perspective on it is that maybe the revisions kind of confirm what we sort of felt like was happening um, and, you know, again, uh, sometimes it, there is a little catch up on the data to, 
um, you know, when things are changing fast, uh, sometimes the data takes a little while to catch up. I guess I've never asked this, but do you know the makings of how revisions happen? I mean, is it different than what happens in grains? Uh, I don't know that I know the details, so I wouldn't want to speculate on yeah. that, um, you know, in terms of uh, exactly how that happens. I don't, I, and I'm not really sure uh, relative to uh, how their sampling frame changes or whatever. So, yeah. I Just curious. You just brought it up. I'm like, you know what? I've never asked. I should ask somebody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, I could, and I could ask too in in more detail. I just never have, so I may have to do that. I mean, because we always hear about it in grain reports, and and mar market analysts, you know, they come on and they like, well, you know, we revise this, and and it and it happens with say unemployment. I mean, those revisions happen. They say we moved this month, and the, the gross domestic product. There's revisions there, so I guess in a way, it's everybody trying to just get things right. Yeah, I think so. You know, they're yeah. Again, it's a it's a statistical process, and um, you know, sometimes you you just get uh, additional information that uh, you need to go back and kind of reset the the boundaries here, and then and then make your new comparisons. I was looking at a chart before we started talking, and it you know it's it's a web and flow, but it the biggest thing is it still keeps trending smaller and smaller. Have we hit peak? cattle inventory in the United States, do you think? Oh, we hit the peak inventory in the mid-1970s. Um, you know, if you look at that chart, we peaked all-time records for cattle inventory, for the beef cow herd, whatever, uh, in the mid-1970s. And then, you know, we got smaller for uh, a lot smaller or smaller fairly quickly, I should say, for about 15 years after that. And then since then, you know, in my mind, we've been trying to kind of stabilize. We're still cyclical, so we still have ups and downs in the numbers. But, you know, as a trend, I, th I think the industry kind of reached a, what could be a stable size, uh, size, but we've had a hard time. We've had uh, two decades in a row where drought has emphasized the lows, taking this lower than we needed to be and wanted to be. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's been a challenge to sort of maintain that stability, uh, you know, going forward. Now, I, you know, I still think we, I don't think we got too big in this last cattle cycle uh, with around 32 million beef cows. Um, I, in fact, when we first sort of peaked out, I described it as a plateau because the economics uh, I thought was going to be a a very sideways kind of a movement, maybe a slight liquidation. And that's sort of what happened from 2019 to 2020. And then by the time we got into 2021, we were starting to see some drought issues take a hold. Certainly 22 and 23 uh, were driven by the drought. So we had a, a fairly pronounced liquidation. Um, so it, it uh, you know, sort of the timing kind of fit in with the cattle cycle, but really exaggerated it uh, to the downside. And this time has taken us lower even than the the one 10 years ago. Yeah, you look at the dips in that same ten uh, chart. Uh, yeah, it is 2013 and uh, 1989. I mean, yes, it all lines up with those big drought cycles that we've had. So is it only weather that lowers our herd size? Is that still the biggest factor? I think, I think weather is the primary reason why we got this low. Uh, again, I don't think we intended to get this low. I don't think the economics would have would have taken us this low uh, from the 2019 peak. 
Um, but having gotten there, now I think there's a number of factors at play, one of which is still continuing weather issues and, and potential weather issues. Uh, but I think there's some other factors at play now that will have a lot to do with uh, how fast we rebuild, probably more than anything. I don't think there's a question that we will rebuild at some point. I don't think there's much of a question that we will rebuild you know, back to significant levels. I've heard a few people say, well, we're just never going to go back. I don't think that's true. I think this uh, this industry has plenty of market potential to be, again, I don't think we got too big in 2019. So I think, you know, I think that's, has, that's still a reasonable target um, somewhere in that neighborhood. But, uh, but the process we're going to get there this time is going to be a lot different than what happened from 2014 to 2019. In what way? The, the the difference, even though it was both drought driven, so it was drought that took us low in twenty, you know, to the low in twenty fourteen. Drought has taken us now to what may be the low. It's not clear it is the low yet, uh, but uh, the drought in 2011, 12, and thirteen was very very severe, but in a specific region, primarily Oklahoma and Texas, and immediately surrounding areas. Lots of the rest of the industry kind of continued with business as usual through that time period. And one of the things that came out of that was, was, was that we maintained and actually started building a bit of a heifer pipeline before we started herd expansion in 2014. This time, we have not done that because the drought has been much more widespread. It's moved around to different regions. It's affected so many more producers over the last two to three years. Um, we And we have continued to liquidate females. So we're in a much bigger hole now uh, in terms of where we start from to try to rebuild, it's going to be a, a much slower process. I think it's going to take significantly longer, even once we decide we want to do it. And it's not clear that producers are quite there yet, but I think they're getting there. I, I you know, I really expect unless weather jumps up is a big factor again here in 2024. I think producers are probably ready to start that process, but it's inevitably going to be a slower process. Well, you answered my question ahead of me even asking this next one about regions, because I was curious. Um, again, last year we talked about your region, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, dry. Right now, where I'm at, dry, but we're not near the cattle producing area that you are. So are you, when you say it's more widespread, that is interesting to me because it then makes it seem like Either it's super pronounced everywhere and really bad in the in the areas that could get impacted the most, or is it just a there's just so many numbers that the, the math has to work out that that reduction is smaller because of the the weather issue in a in a wider area. Yeah, you know if you look at the drought, I mean it it really started in 2020 and that you know the first year of the drought was really kind of southern Rocky Mountains, uh, southern part of Colorado. Utah, Arizona, and they were severely impacted. Colorado had a big decrease in beef cow numbers that year, but they're not big enough to really change the national numbers. So it didn't show up so much till 2021, and the drought was much worse in the northern plains. So it was primarily the Dakotas, eastern Montana, Wyoming, um, and then it sort of moved out of that area, and they improved quite a bit in 2022, moved farther south uh, into the central and southern plains in 2022, um, in 2023, um, it got worse down in Texas again. Uh, Oklahoma actually had a pretty good year in 2023, but we were a, kind of an island in a sea of drought uh, in 2023. 
And uh, Kansas uh, continued and, and still continues to have dry areas. It got worse in Missouri uh, in 2023. And then late in the year, of course, well, it moved back up into the Midwest somewhat, but it also moved into the Delta and Gulf Coast region for a while. Now, recently, they've gotten a lot of rain. So I think, you know, they've gotten some improvement. But the point is, everybody's kind of had their turn in the grinder here. And they've been forced to do some things, make some tough decisions, and uh, and incurred a lot of uh, both, you know, sort of physical pain in terms of the, the herd and, and the resource issues, um, as well as the financial issues that go along with trying to survive a drought. And so I think it's been a much more broad-based kind of an impact cumulatively over these uh, last three years or so. Or let's play conspiracy theorist. We have fewer feeders, fewer operations who are bigger, therefore maybe a little more flexible in how they can shift from one state to another and weather a storm. Is is that a, a possibility? I don't think that's much of the story. Um, you know, we, we as we've moved tighter, uh, we've managed to hold feedlot inventories high kind of against gravity. We've sort of been defying gravity for about the last three years. And we've done that, uh, you know, with a couple of ways. The biggest one, of course, is that we've continued to place a lot of heifers um, and and keep feedlot inventory. Feedlots obviously are volume-based businesses. They want to run that feed mill. Packers are volume businesses. They need to run as close to capacity as they can. Uh, both of them are trying to manage costs more than anything. And, uh, and, and, you know, again, we've been able to do it. The drought kind of aided and abetted that process by forcing, in many cases, uh, pe- people to, to market feeder cattle sooner rather than later. So they got into the feedlot a little quicker. We pulled cattle forward a little bit. And so in some cases, we pulled them in at somewhat lighter weights, which means they can stay in the feedlot a lot longer. And so, you know, feedlots need to be full feeding cattle, but it doesn't matter whether they're turning them over very fast. And so, and in fact, what we continue to see is the days on feed on average have gone up. Uh, the turnover rates have gone down. So we're not necessarily producing more beef. And that was certainly true beginning in 2023. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the dynamics of how those, uh, those inventories play out. Now, I say all that to say that you can, you can chase that thing as far as, you know, for a while. But at some point in time, you run out of runway. And I think we're, you know, um, it's been slower to come down than I thought, but I really think in the next few months, we will see these feedlot inventories tighten up dramatically because we just just don't have the cattle. The feeder supply really reflects that now. And of course, the clincher will be when we do start retaining heifers, then we won't be placing them in the feedlots. And so a tight cattle supply is going to get severely tight for a couple of year period when we start retaining heifers to try to expand the herd. And, and we haven't really gotten into that yet, but it's coming. One side of the ledger, that mill can get some cheaper corn right now. Yeah. Does um, that complicate matters? Well, you know, it's as we go forward, I, and, you know, to back up just a little bit, 2023 was a pretty good year for cattle feeders because we got to record high fed cattle prices, frankly, faster than I expected. I'm not sure why the fed cattle kind of led feeder cattle in that process, but they did. Um, and so feedlots, uh, you know, really had pretty good returns because they got to sell sort of record fed cattle prices at 2022 feeder cattle prices for the most part. Um, and even though cost of gain was high, uh, they did pretty well. Going forward, they are going to get some breaks on cost of gain. That will help um, and certainly will provide them with more incentive to 
to try to find things to feed, but the numbers are going to get tighter. They're going to have a hard time finding numbers of feeder cattle of any kind, and they're going to be very, very expensive when they do find them. So I think they're going to face a lot more challenges with their margins going forward, like all of the margin industries above the Cal-CAF level. I've been avoiding this word for the majority of the conversation. I only had one word written down, and that was bubble. Are you concerned at all for those folks that you just talked about that they're the ones who have bought the feeder? They've bought that animal at the high. Um, well, no, they haven't bought it at the high um, because we're nowhere near the highs yet. Uh, again, you know, if you look at the high prices we had in 2014 and 15, those high prices led by calves and feeder cattle, um, uh, as happens in this kind of a situation, uh, but those happened a year to a year and a half into herd expansion. Again, that's the product of a tight supply getting a lot tighter when you start pulling heifers out of the, the feeder cattle mix. And, uh, and so that's all ahead of us yet. We've gotten to nearly record high prices just in anticipation of that. Um, so, you know, where we are now is not, is not the peak that we saw in 2014. It's about a third of the way up the left shoulder of that thing. And so, uh, you know, we, we've got a long ways to go here. Uh, but all of that said, you know, in this kind of a market, again, everybody, the, the market's focus right now is on the cow-calf sector. We need more cows. We've liquidated too far relative to the market's potential. Uh, the market's trying to provide incentives. Uh, so it's going to raise those calf prices. And then the whole constellation of feeder cattle up through fed cattle and so on goes up. But the input side of those margin operations above the cow-calf level are going to go up faster and probably proportionately more than the output price is. And so every one of those margin operations in general is going to feel a squeeze. Um, and that's going to become much more apparent for the feedlots. Every turn of cattle for the next uh, two plus years is going to be uh, increasingly challenging for them uh, because the replacement costs, the incoming cost. Once they uh, sell cattle out, it is going gonna, is gonna to look pretty daunting, I think, as we go forward. And the numbers won't be good, so they won't be operating anywhere close to capacity, and they're going to have some cost inefficiencies that go along with that. Yeah, is there a size of producer that's more susceptible in that cycle that you just talked about? Well, uh, I'm not sure. Um, you know, the, the big guys need the most cattle. Um and they're the ones that, that, that got that way because of cost efficiencies. So, you know, in some sense, when the numbers aren't there, they can potentially be uh, the first ones to, to sort of feel the pain. Now, that said, small guys may not have the easy advantage to find cattle. Uh, they're probably operating in a little different market space, if you will, a little bit smaller circle. So uh, I, don't know that, I don't know that it's going to make a lot of difference. Like everybody's going to face a lot of challenges, maybe in slightly different ways. What about the consumer? Because at what point does that consumer look at the meat counter and go, uh-uh, something else? Well, you know what? Beef is already at record levels. There's a ton of pork and poultry out there, and consumers aren't turning to it. Um, and as long as that's true, now it could change, but, you know, we've been through a lot the last couple of years. We've continued to watch demand, and I, and I will continue to watch it, uh, concerned about that potential, but we just don't see any indication that that fundamentally consumer demand is weakening at all. And, you know, you know, as well as I do, you can go to any steakhouse in town on, on Thursday night and you're going to wait in line for an hour. And so it still continues to look pretty good at that point. Now we're producing less beef. 
Um, beef production had an all-time peak in 2022 as a result of liquidation. So that's a non-sustainable way to peak out beef production because we were eating inventory. You can't do that consistently. And so 2023, we started to see beef production fall, dropped about 4.6% or something like that. And 2023, we're looking for another 5% decrease in 2024 and another decrease yet of some magnitude in 2025 at least. Uh, so all of that said, um, we're, uh, you know, consumers are, some consumers are not going to eat as much beef because there isn't going to be as much beef. And so, you know, that's what, uh, that's what's, uh, that, you know, some people are going to see that and say, well, that means demand is, is, is fading. In an economist world, that's not a loss of demand. That's a, that's a change in the quantity available, right? And, and in, and in the process, when supplies get tighter, uh, the market generally rations a smaller supply with higher prices. And that's what I expect to happen. So, um, you know, I think we'll see higher, somewhat higher. Now, again, I said earlier that at every level of the market, all the way to the consumer level, prices won't go up as fast or proportionately as much as the layers below them. So, you know, I think everybody, and that means that ultimately probably retailers will feel some squeaks. I suspect that retail prices, they will go higher, but I don't think they'll go higher proportionally as much as probably box beef will at some point. Um, box beef won't go up as much as fed cattle do. So packers will get squeezed. They're already getting squeezed. Um, so, you know, we'll, uh, everybody's going to get a piece of this, uh, this squeeze going forward. But the end result is that there's going to be less beef and it's going to cost more, uh, for the foreseeable future. Okay. Give me the packer story in this. You did just kind of, you know, their margins were good. Then they weren't. What do you see them uh, here in 24? You did kind of just gloss it quick. Well, yeah, um, yeah, same story, really. They're a margin operation. They're a volume-based business. They're going to have trouble with both of those things going forward. Uh, the supplies aren't there. Um, and, and, uh, and again, uh, head cattle prices are going to squeeze them relatively more, even though box beef will, will adjust. It will go up at some point, but you know, the dynamics of those supply uh, changes take time to work through the market. And so I think the Packers, uh, you know, to the extent that I have a little interaction with them, they know what's coming. They're prepared for it. They don't like it, but they can't do anything about it. And they're prepared to kind of uh, hunker down and do the best they can for the next uh, two plus years. At some point when the consumer has to pay or it's believed that someone's making way more money than they should, Congress gets involved, or your elected official. Where do, where do you anticipate they might sniff around this cycle? Um, well, I suppose if there's going to be some of that, I try to stay out of politics. I can't figure out cattle markets, let alone politics. <laughs> but, but, but you know, if they, I mean, there is that tendency. Um, if it, if it happens this time, it'll probably happen in that consumer space. I would suspect as much as anywhere. Uh, there's going to be there's going to be some wailing and gnashing of teeth over uh, continued high prices and limited limited supplies. Not that we're going to run out. In fact, one of the keys to not running out of beef and having actual disruptions in supplies and supply chains is to allow prices to adjust. That's what markets do more than anything is make sure we don't run out of stuff. And uh, if we let the market work, it will take care of that when we when when we yield to the temptation to start messing with it, that's when 
well, I'm, I, you know, I get nervous that we're going to actually create some additional problems in the marketplace. Yeah, you and me both get concerned about that. And yes, no, I'm not trying to get you to dip into politics, but you know, we both know what we're talking about here. I mean, it just, it it happens. Someone, we still haven't had a resolution from the last investigation of cycles. No action. Uh, you couldn't get beef state producers from both parties together. Even in their own party couldn't get together. So I don't have a lot of faith that anything's going to come there. And I, I think what you just said is, like so many things, the market will work itself out. You know, the beef industry, collectively, all the things we've talked about, these multiple layers, the time dynamics, the dis geographic dispersion of this industry, I have argued for years and years, I believe, I truly believe that the U.S. cattle and beef industry is the most complex set of markets on the planet. And and I've always challenged people, come up with another industry any anywhere that's more complex and, and I haven't had anybody really, uh, uh, you know, come up, come up with a better example. And I say all that to say that there's so many moving parts in this industry and we rely on so many markets at so many different levels that if you start messing with one of them uh, or a couple of them at a, at a given level, the, the unintended consequences uh, across the entire industry are just unfathomable because you really can't anticipate what all's connected to, to what all else. I mean, it's just enormously complex. And so, you know, markets do a remarkable job. Um, when you think about the fact that you can walk into any grocery store in the country any day of the year and there's fresh meat in there that's probably not more than two or three weeks from having been processed, but the process that started building the supply for that piece of meat to be there started two and a half years ago. It's absolutely amazing. Any of it works. And it speaks to the power of the marketplace to, you know, to coordinate a tremendous amount of diverse actors and, and situations and market levels and keep it all flowing. I think it's actually quite remarkable what happens when we, when you look at that. And that's why I always appreciate you being able to boil it down for simpletons like myself. Uh, that's always great, Daryl. Uh, okay, but I'm going to ask you to do one more simpleton thing here at the end. A year from now when we're talking, um, do you anticipate, I, I think earlier you said there's we're looking at a two to three year cycle on one thing, a couple of months on here, six months in there. I guess let's let's just base we'll boil it down to three things. What are we looking at for inventory a year from now? The, you know, the very best that I could see happening, and that's assuming weather is not a continuing negative factor, uh, and that we even have a, uh, a, a, an interest or producer expectations that want to try to start uh, uh, some sort of expansion. The very best that I can come up with with the numbers we have to work with today is we, we would be lucky to hold it stable this year. Um, you know, if you look at, again, these heifer inventories, um, you know, the USDA just came out with the replacement, the beef replacement heifer numbers are the lowest since 1950. Uh, and they revised last year's number. So these last two January, uh, based on the revision a year ago and this one, uh, we've had two years now of heifer uh, of less than 5 million beef replacement heifers in the country. And that's not happened since 1950. And if you look at, um, so, you know, when you think about 
changes in the cow herd. We're going to slaughter some cows, but the question is how many? Beef cow slaughter would have to drop 20% or more year over year, given the number of replacement heifers we have available right now, just to hold it steady. I think that'll be that'll be a, a best case scenario for 2024 would be to not liquidate much more. And I honestly think there's a good chance we will liquidate a little bit more. Again, assuming weather's not even added into that equation. Um, and then, but we might set the stage in 2024 to begin rebuilding that heifer pipeline so that we could put together at least a limited level of uh, herd expansion, maybe in 2025. Even then, I don't think it's going to be that fast. I think it's going to take another year beyond that if we start this year and we don't have any disruptions. And if somebody doesn't cash out when they look at a price and someone says it's time for you to be done, and that happens too. You know, yeah, that comes up a lot. I get that question about age of producers and all that. And and I, I do think it's a big issue. I mean, obviously, there's, there's a, you know, there, there's a, the, the age demographics of the industry would suggest that we're going to see a fair amount of transition. Logically, in this kind of a market environment, some of those guys are going to take advantage of that opportunity. I, and, and all of that's very important for them. And, and maybe it's important in a, in a sort of demographic sense for the industry. From a market standpoint, I'm not sure it changes things a great deal. Most of the time, most of those resources those guys are using are going to stay in the industry and they're going to stay in production. So maybe we're changing the name on the mailbox, but I don't think for the most part that those pastures are going to go away. Now, sometimes they do, but in the total scheme of things, I think those resources probably stay in the industry. So maybe the transition adds a little more lag time in getting this thing going with new ownership, new plans, new expectations. But but I think the resources will be there and, and I think we'll continue to um, you know respond to the market as best we can uh, going forward. We'll see how it all shakes out. I always appreciate your insight. Thank you so very much. Good to see Happy you again. To do it. Yeah, you bet. It's good to visit with you. My thanks to Daryl for his insight on the market. Recently, at the end of the Market to Market TV show, we asked you a question about some feedback, and I want to read one of the letters that we received about your favorite farm activity in winter. And it's from our friend Lee in Iowa, who says, Dear Paul, my favorite activity in winter is checking the photos on my trail cam. I position my trail cam on the creek bridge on my farm. It's like a window into the secret nightlife of the wild critters on my farm as they saunter, swim, or fly by. The most common sightings are raccoons, pheasants, coyotes, but I see great blue herons, skunks, wood ducks, muskrats, and the white-tailed deer in the summer. You can see in those photos, it's quite active. We thank you for being active with our program. Send me an email anytime, market to market at iowapbs.org. New episodes come out each and every Tuesday. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.